If worry about if we're living in the last days or how the world will end is on one end of the spectrum, what I call biblical watchfulness is on the opposite end. Many Christians today are really worried about events that are taking place in the world around us, even to the point of experiencing anxiety. They may be basing decisions on their worry. They wonder if things like wars, famines, COVID-19, loss of morality in our nation, earthquakes, floods, fires, and the effects of global warming, and maybe the Islamic radicalized militant terrorists that fill our headlines daily, are all signs that the end of the world is coming soon. Many worry unnecessarily about the end of the world while they interpret tragic yet normal world events as signs. Yet how many Christians are watchful for the few signs that Jesus did give us to indicate that the end of the age is near. Jesus warned that even a world full of false prophets, war, and famines does not necessarily indicate that it's the end of the world. Such things have been occurring since the first time Jesus came, and even before. Then Jesus warned about the persecution of the church, He stated prior to his coming to expect to be hated for his namesake and possibly suffer persecution, even resulting in death. Well, we've talked about all that in past podcasts. Next, in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus gives his disciples a very specific, recognizable sign to watch for, which will indicate his impending coming. This sign will be unmistakable. It will consist of a series of acts carried out by the Antichrist. This sign will begin with the confirming of a covenant and end with what's called the abomination of desolation 1260 days later. Before we get into the words that Jesus spoke, I want to make a quick comment about something I've often heard said from the pulpit. In fact, I just heard it again this past week as I was listening to a message on the rapture on YouTube. This is typically said by a pastor who's teaching that the church will be raptured prior to any trials or tribulation like Jesus is talking about in the, in the Olivet Discourse. The pastor will say something really holy sounding like, I am not watching for the appearance of the Antichrist. I'm watching for the return of Christ. As well intended as such a statement is, it's entirely unbiblical. It's only meant to have shock value and provide an emotional argument against the idea that God's elect will have to endure persecution at the hands of the Antichrist, and maybe subtly belittle those who are paying attention to scriptures that contain information regarding the end of the age that involve the Antichrist. It's as if to say, you don't want to be one of those people, do you? Well, it's Jesus in the Olivet Discourse and elsewhere, and Paul in Thessalonians that tell us that preceding the coming of Jesus, the Antichrist will first come on the scene. So, to watch for Jesus is to note that the Antichrist will come first. Anyway, these are the words of Jesus from Matthew 24, 15. This is my translation. Please feel free to follow along in your own. So, when you see the foul and detestable thing that causes desolation set up in the holy place, spoken of by the prophet Daniel, let the one reviewing it understand. This is the same thing from Mark chapter 13, verse 14, the first part of it. Now, when you see the foul and detestable thing that causes desolation set up where it should not be, spoken of by the prophet Daniel, let the one reviewing it understand. In order to fully understand what Jesus is talking about in this 
passage, these couple verses, we need to spend some time on three background topics. The time period related to the abomination of desolation referred to in prophecy circles as the 70th week of Daniel. Second, we also need to understand who the person known as the Antichrist is. And finally, number three, we'll need to know what he does, which would be considered the abomination of desolation, or what I have translated as the foul and detestable thing that causes desolation. The abomination of desolation will be a future event involving a reestablished Jewish temple or holy place in Jerusalem. Similar to the nation of Israel, which had ceased to exist until 1948, that Jewish temple does not exist today. If the prophecies in the Bible can be trusted to literally come true as they always have in the past, the temple, in some physical form, will exist again one day. The act of the abomination of desolation will be so terrible and repulsive in God's eyes that it will leave the holy place, the Jewish temple, unsuitable and unusable for its intended purpose, which is making sacrifices to and worshiping the one true God. The foul and detestable act will leave the temple desolate or empty. To understand the abomination of desolation, Jesus said one must consider what the Old Testament prophet Daniel had to say on the subject. The term, abomination of desolation, is a quote from Daniel chapter 11, verse 31 and 12, 11. As you'll hear as I read, you'll notice that the words used in Daniel are abomination that makes desolate. Here they are. This is Daniel chapter 11, 31 to 32. Forces of him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. Now from Daniel chapter 12, verse 11. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away, and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1290 days. Both of these scriptures are surrounded by other scriptures, of course, that will put the abomination of desolation in context and provide a lot of detail about what form it will take. According to traditional Christian and Jewish views, the book of Daniel was written in the 6th century BC by the prophet Daniel. From the 1st century Jews' perspective, they were looking at the sign spoken of by Daniel as though it had already occurred in 168 BC when Antiochus IV built an altar to Jupiter on the sacred Hebrew altar of burnt offering and then offered swine's flesh upon it. This was a well-known historical event which records when the Seleucid Empire was ejected from the temple after a lamp containing only a single day's worth of oil miraculously burned for eight days, ultimately bringing about the Jewish celebration of Hanukkah. Hanukkah was celebrated as a major holiday, it still is, but it was in Jesus' day, and his disciples would have been very familiar with the story behind the holiday. But Daniel's prophecy was never completely fulfilled. The prophecy in Daniel, like Jesus' prophecy on the Mount of Olives, was associated with the coming and anointing of the Messiah as king forever. One can say that the prophecy was partially fulfilled, but a partially fulfilled prophecy is ultimately an unfulfilled prophecy. Jesus knew that this surprising statement about Daniel's abomination of desolation 
might lead some into confusion, since this event seemed to have already taken place in history from the disciples' perspective. That's why he must have added the words, let the reader understand, as it's translated in the King James Version of the Bible. The phrase, quote, let the reader understand, unquote, as it has been translated, once puzzled me. As you're reading through the Olivet Discourse and come across this statement, it sounds like Jesus pauses and makes an out-of-place editorial comment. People just don't normally speak in such a way. The other possibility that I considered was that maybe those who wrote down this version of the Olivet Discourse later, both in Matthew and Mark, added this comment to stress how important it is to understand what Jesus said. During the early days of the church, and up through medieval times, there was actually an office in the church known as the reader. They were subordinate to the pastor or bishop, but were charged with reading the available scriptures. Eventually, it became a compensated position in the church. Remember, there is no book called the Bible. Early churches had access to the Old Testament and letters that would make up the future New Testament. Copies of these letters were relatively rare. The literacy rate was not high, and no one had a Bible at home to read. The reader was the one in charge of keeping the scriptures and reading them to the group when they came together. They were also often charged with explaining the scripture. In this way, this parenthetical statement about let the reader understand would make some sense. This may have at least led to how this statement was translated in the 17th century by the translators of the King James Bible. However, such an added-in editorial comment would also be unique in Scripture. I no longer believe any of these things to be the explanation for this statement, let the reader understand. What I do believe is that the English word reader is a completely inadequate translation from the original language. This phrase is not only for the benefit of future readers, but also for those who were hearing it directly from Jesus on the Mount of Olives, the disciples. These are Jesus' words that were recorded, and the disciples he was speaking to were not readers of what he was telling them. The statement is directed at anyone, his disciples and future readers or hearers of Scripture, who may have some prior knowledge or understanding of Daniel's prophecy and may have already reached some conclusions about it. Jesus is telling them that they should think about or reconsider what they think they know again. The Greek word anagonosko has been interpreted here as read or reader. Anagonosko is made up of two words, one ana, which means again, and gnosko, meaning to know. The word can be translated knowing something certainly, or knowing something again, or recognizing something. By extension, or applying it to how we can again know something, it can also mean to read. In the New Testament, anagonosko is commonly translated into the English word read. Like I just said, reading is one of the main forms of media that allow us to know again information that has previously been given. It's one way we review information that's been stored for us. If you're forgetful of information, you can write it down so that you can know it again. You can anagonosko or review what you once knew before at a later time. Watching a video or listening to an audio recording is another modern way to know something again. 
The second important Greek word Jesus used in this parenthetical statement was noeo. It means to consider, to think about, perceive, or understand. Anagonosko, in combination with noeo, can mean to think again about or reconsider something. By using these words, Jesus is very likely saying to review what you already believe about the abomination of desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel and understand it in light of what I am telling you now. Again, he may have said this because he knew that people had preconceived ideas that Daniel's prophecies had already been fulfilled. He wanted to make sure his followers understood that Daniel's prophecies are associated with the end of the age and his return, and it wasn't just some historical event. What Jesus said would not have made sense to his disciples present for the Olivet Discourse if he had thrown in a parenthetical phrase such as, let the reader understand. Why would he have been singling out this passage to future readers and telling them to understand it more than any other part of the Olivet Discourse? He wasn't dictating his discourse to a secretary to type up later. He would have been making an assumption that someone was going to write this stuff down for people to read later. It makes far more sense that Jesus was telling the four disciples listening to him to review the Daniel passages that he was referring to and reconsider its meaning in light of the rest of what Jesus was telling them. Well, Jesus gave almost no details about what would constitute the abomination of desolation. He was depending on those listening to him to review, or anagonosko, the information Daniel spoke of. We today have to do the same thing. Part of understanding the abomination of desolation comes from understanding the individual that will facilitate the abomination, the Antichrist. One specific thing that the Antichrist will cause to happen that Jesus does mention is found in Mark chapter 13, verse 13. There it says that the abomination is standing where it ought not. Matthew adds the significant detail that it will be standing in the holy place. An alternative way to translate these words is set up in the holy place, or set up where it should not be. Daniel also uses words regarding setting up the abomination in the temple. This very likely may be referring to a likeness or an image or an idol of the Antichrist. An image of the Antichrist standing in a place devoted to the God of the universe would definitely qualify as an abomination or a foul and detestable thing. The Apostle Paul gives us the most likely answer to what form the abomination will take in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3-5. to 5. I'm going to read that for you here. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. The book of Revelation gives some possible details regarding the image or idol that's set up in the temple. This is from Revelation chapter 13, verses 14 to 16. Well, because I've studied out the Revelation passage I'm going to read thoroughly, I'm going to take the liberty to replace the symbolic words with what they represent. I determined what they represent by allowing the surrounding scripture to define the symbolism. I talked a bit about how this works in the last podcast. I'll be replacing the word it 
with the false prophet and the word beast with antichrist. Here we go. And by the signs that the false prophet is allowed to work in the presence of the antichrist, the false prophet deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the antichrist that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And the false prophet was allowed to give breath to the image of the antichrist so that the image of the Antichrist might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the Antichrist to be slain. Again, that was Revelation chapter 13, verses 14 to 16. That passage and the one from Thessalonians together seem to indicate that the false prophet, the Antichrist's evil partner in crime, who will act like the spiritual or religious salesperson for the Antichrist, is going to cause an image of the Antichrist to be erected in the holy place the Jewish temple. The false prophet will appear to give this image of the Antichrist life. Magic, miracle, or technology, this is not that difficult to accomplish in this age of computer-generated images, holographic projections, and animatronics. The other day, I used an app on my smartphone to very realistically animate a photograph of my grandma who's been dead for decades. My grandma Anna appeared to be blinking, shifting her neck and head around, and gleefully singing a pop song. It was cool, but weird. First century historian Josephus tells us what Antiochus IV did to constitute an abomination of desolation in the temple in his day. He carried away the golden vessels and treasures of the temple, stopped the sacrifices, offered swine on the altar, and compelled people to stop worshiping God and to stop the act of circumcision. Those who refused to stop worshiping God were mutilated, strangled, or crucified along with their children. It's likely that the abomination of desolation of the future will also involve defiling implements used in the holy place, as well as the holy place itself. This will be accomplished at the very least by the image of the Antichrist being set up there to be worshipped as God. Additionally, the Antichrist will halt the daily sacrifices to the one true God, which have yet to be reinstituted. By going back to the book of Daniel, we can know exactly when, in the context of end times events, the abomination of desolation that Jesus warns his followers about will take place. It will be precisely in the middle of a seven-year period known as the 70th week of Daniel. When you think about this, you need to know that years, according to the Hebrew calendar, are based on 360 days instead of 365. We read about this in Daniel chapter 9, and it says this, And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate, until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. That's Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. There's that desolation phrase again that ties this to the abomination of desolation. The abomination of desolation takes place in the middle of a period of time referred to in the scripture as one seven or one week. A covenant that I'll talk about later will be confirmed that lasts for this period of seven. Many translations, such as the English Standard Version, interpret the word seven as weak. However, in context here, because of how it's used in the related Daniel passages and how it's defined in surrounding scripture, 
This word literally means a period of seven. Seven what's, right? To begin to understand the answer to the question of a period of seven what's, we need to go back to the book of Daniel, chapter 9. Daniel tells us in that chapter that in the first year of the reign of King Darius, who was a Mede, Daniel studied the scriptures and came to find out that Jerusalem had to lie desolate for 70 years due to the sin of the people. You can read about that in Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 to 2. This study of Daniel's inspired him to go to God in prayer and plead to the Almighty to set his people free from captivity. Because of this prayer, the angel Gabriel, who Daniel recognized from an earlier vision, was sent to him to help him understand God's plans. Don't we all wish that would happen? Gabriel started by telling Daniel that he, Daniel, was considered much esteemed. You can read about that in chapter 9, verses 20 to 23. The following is what Gabriel said to Daniel after that. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgressions, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then, for sixty-two weeks, it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. And after the sixty-two weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. That's Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. So Daniel writes that the angel Gabriel gave him information about a time that would last 70 weeks, or more literally, 70 weeks sevens. When dealing with prophecy-related numbers, when the normal literal meaning of a number does not make sense, you need to determine the length of time represented by the number in some other way. Ideally, we let Scripture define Scripture. In this case, we're considering the meaning of the numbers 70 and 7 in context to the surrounding Scripture. Here, we'll be able to let Scripture that follows in Daniel define what the period of 7 means. And we can verify the definition in light of our knowledge of what has taken place in history after this prophecy was given. What this passage is referring to is the period of time between when the decree to rebuild the holy city, Jerusalem, went out until the most holy was cut off. Looking back at history from our perspective, we know that the most holy one that was to be anointed as king, but was cut off prior to that, was Jesus. So for us, because of when Jesus finally showed up hundreds of years later after Daniel gave the prophecy, we know that the length of time that the numbers in this case represent could not be literal days or weeks or even months, but that they represented 70 sevens of years. 70 times 7 years equals 490 years. So to paraphrase the above passage in light of this definition, Here we go. Daniel, 
your people have 490 years to get their act together before the Messiah comes to rule over Israel. Let that prophetic math sink in a second. Okay, got it? Good, because here's some more. (laughs) This is really pretty simple arithmetic, but if it's new, it might take hearing it a couple times to understand it. I'm going to read a passage from Daniel which talks about several different seven-year periods, or what is translated as weeks. Then, I'm going to explain how in the end, after most of the periods of sevens take place, we are one seven-year period short of being fulfilled. Where the following passages refer to seven-year periods, I'm going to do the math and convert them into years for you. Please feel free to read the passages and do the math yourself. This is from Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. 490 years are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be forty-nine years. Then, for four hundred and thirty-four years, it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. And after the four hundred and thirty-four years, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with the flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. This passage actually refers to seven sevens, or 49 years, and 62 sevens, or 434 years. Together, the two periods equal 69 periods of sevens, or 483 years. It's another discussion as to why seven sevens had been separated out from the 62 sevens. That's a topic for the study of the book of Daniel. For now, for our purposes, suffice it to say that there's a reason for separating the two periods of sevens out. What concerns us now is Gabriel only accounted for 69 sevens, or 483, out of 490 years. And that, he said, would take place before a number of things could happen. Things that sound an awful lot like will happen at the end of this age when Jesus returns, including establishing everlasting righteousness. That hasn't happened yet. There's a missing seven. Gabriel said there would be 70 sevens, or 490 years, from the decree to rebuild the city until the most holy, Jesus, the Messiah, would be anointed. We find only one verse later that the last seven years has been separated out. It was separated out because after 69 of the sevens had elapsed, Just as Daniel wrote, and history records, the Messiah, Jesus, was cut off by being rejected by Israel when he was crucified. The remaining or missing seven is the seven years that's associated with the abomination of desolation and is at the end of the age. This seven-year period must take place in order for Daniel's prophecy to be completely fulfilled. It isn't until the end of this seven-year period that Jesus will be anointed King and Messiah once and for always. 
To sum up this prophecy in Daniel so far, Gabriel has informed Daniel that, number one, there'll be a decree to rebuild Jerusalem. Number two, the Messiah would be cut off 483 years after that decree to rebuild goes out. And number three, during that period of time, Daniel's people, the descendants of the tribes of Israel, need to turn back to God and observe his commandments. What about this decree, the event that started the prophetic clock? Historically, there were three separate decrees by earthly kings that might fit Daniel's vision. Because of several different calendars that have been used through history that utilize differing numbers of days that make up a year, the following dates are up for debate. However, using currently widely accepted dates, there are three possible start dates of the decree. The first by King Cyrus in 538 BC. The second by King Darius in 457 BC. And finally, by King Artaxerxes in 445 BC. You can see the book of Ezra chapter 1 and Ezra chapter 6 and Nehemiah chapter 2 for details. There's a difference of opinion among scholars as to whether it was the second or third decree to rebuild the temple that Gabriel had in mind when he spoke to Daniel. Some even think that Gabriel may have been referring to a heavenly decree. If so, scripture and history are silent on when that would have occurred. I personally don't believe God would have sent an angel to deliver such a message to Daniel, only to have it be impossible to know when a heavenly decree would be announced outside of the earshot of mere mortals. When 483 years is added to the King Darius decree, the date comes out to be 26 A.D. That means if Jesus was 33 when he was crucified, or as the Daniel prophecy puts it, cut off, he would have been born in about 6 B.C., the best case I'm aware of sets the birth of Jesus somewhere between 6 and 4 B.C. When the Artaxerxes decree date is used, 483 years later comes to 38 A.D. Whether it was Darius or Artaxerxes that made the proclamation to rebuild Jerusalem, we can have confidence that 483 years after the decree, whichever or whatever it was, went out, one of the decrees hit the Messiah being cut off or crucified right on the money according to God's plan, and despite of our calendar guesswork. Author Charles Cooper presents an alternative theory regarding this period of time. It's worth considering. To greatly sum up the several chapters in his book which he lays out to make his case, Cooper believes that 483 years after King Cyrus decreed that the temple should be rebuilt, the year was 70 A.D. That was the year that the rebuilt temple was destroyed by the Romans and the Jewish leadership was exiled from Jerusalem. Cooper then proposes that the current time period we're living in, rather than being referred to as the Church Age, which began circa 33 AD, would be more appropriately called the period of Jewish desolation. There are several reasons that I consider Cooper's theory a viable alternative to the traditional. My suggestion is to read his book and decide for yourself. Whether or not the well-thought-out case that Cooper makes is correct, or the traditionally accepted theory is, which states that the 483 years ended with the crucifixion of Jesus, both theories agree that there is still a missing seven-year period that is still in the future. That's what's important to what we're considering here. Here are a few more numbers pertaining to the same period of time. 
In chapter 12 of the book of Daniel, we read that after the abomination of desolation occurs, quote, in the middle of the seven, unquote, until the end, there will be a period of 1290 days. As if to confirm that these periods of sevens are actually talking about periods of seven years, the Daniel chapter 12 passage provides us with a definition by recording how many days are left until the end of the age from the time that the abomination of desolation event takes place. The very same event Jesus was talking about. Remember, Hebrew calendar years are based on 360-day years, not 365. 1290 days is three and a half Hebrew calendar years with 30 days left over. This scripture refers to the second half of the seven-year period spoken of in Daniel chapter 9, the missing period of seven I keep talking about. Why the additional period of 30 days beyond the end of the seven-year period? The answer to this requires an entirely different discussion that's more appropriately found in a study of the events found in the book of Revelation. According to Revelation, there are important events that take place after the end of the seven-year period in question. Those events take place during this leftover 30-day period. However, for our purposes right now in talking about what Jesus was referring to in the Olivet Discourse, suffice it to say that the abomination of desolation will occur exactly 1260 days or three and a half years after the final seven begins. How are we going to know when the final seven has begun? There's an event that Daniel tells us about that will start the seven-year clock ticking. That event, the Antichrist will, quote, confirm, unquote, a, quote, covenant, unquote, with, quote, the many, unquote. Confirm a covenant with the many. One of the few hard signs that will allow those followers of Christ who are alive at the time to identify the end of the age will be the Antichrist entering into or confirming a covenant with many. Since all the prophecies in the book of Daniel concern Israel, the covenant will likewise concern the nation of Israel. During modern times, Israel has entered into several covenants. If we want to be able to identify the covenant from the rest, there are several important questions that need to be answered. We learn of the covenant in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, where the angel tells Daniel that he, the Antichrist, will make a strong covenant with many for one seven. The seven Daniel wrote of in this passage is the missing 70th period of seven years that is yet to take place. If I haven't made it clear yet, this seven-week period of time I keep talking about is what you've probably come to know as the tribulation period. Well, ultimately, the covenant will be about the nation of Israel putting their trust in some human being or outside government rather than the Almighty God. This is a mistake that they've made before that can be read about in a number of Old Testament stories. This ill-founded trust always backfires on Israel. The peace process in Israel is always in the news. Israel has been persecuted and hated since the children of Abraham born through his wife Sarah went on to become a nation. The covenant most likely will be about Israel seeking peace and security by relying on someone's promises other than Almighty God. God chose Israel as his people. It's through his people that he would reveal himself as the one true God of the universe. 
When Israel chooses another besides God to put their trust in, it never goes well for them. In the future covenant with the Antichrist, Israel will be choosing a, quote, covenant with death, unquote. The scripture I'm about to read, although it may have had relevance for the immediate future of Israel when it was written thousands of years ago, also is a prophetic passage ultimately speaking of the covenant that Israel will one day in the future enter into. This can be found in Isaiah chapter 28, verses 14 to 18. Here it is. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers, who rule this people in Jerusalem, because you have said, We have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us, for we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste, and I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line, and hail will sweep away the refuge of lies, and waters will overwhelm the shelter. Then your covenant with death will be annulled and your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, you will be beaten down by it. This passage of Scripture is a warning to the leaders of Israel who rule over Jerusalem that choose to enter into the covenant with the Antichrist. In the hopes that they will be spared great calamity, what this passage calls the overwhelming scourge, they enter into the covenant, which is based on lies. Because they choose to do so, God will sweep away the refuge of lies, leaving them subject to the very calamities they were trying to avoid. However, because of a, quote, cornerstone, unquote, that God lays in Jerusalem, the covenant with death will be canceled and God will save Israel. This costly cornerstone that is spoken of is, of course, Jesus. You can read about that and how Jesus is the cornerstone in several places. If, you, if you're writing stuff down, it's Matthew 21, 42, Mark 12, 10, Luke 20, 17, Acts 4, 11, Ephesians 2, 20, and 1 Peter 2, verses 6 to 7. Ultimately, those that turn to their Messiah, Jesus, will be saved. This is precisely what we see the end times prophecy speak of in reference to Israel. Beyond knowing the covenant will involve Israel, it's difficult to nail down additional details. Is it a peace treaty? Does it exchange land for peace? Does it speak of who controls the Temple Mount in Jerusalem? It's difficult to say. However, we may have a clue in that there is currently no sacrifice taking place in Israel like is spoken of in Daniel. And likewise, there is no temple right now in Jerusalem. Beyond peace and security, rebuilding the Holy Temple on the Temple Mount and reinstating the sacrifice are two things that many Jews in Israel would like to have happen. However, today, the Palestinians are in control of the Temple Mount on which the Temple must sit. I don't like to speculate generally, but could it be that in partnership with the false prophet, a part of this covenant will be to make provisions for a temple to be built and sacrifices to take place on the Temple Mount that's currently controlled by the Islamic community? Maybe, but as we remained watchful, we should not allow this speculation to distract us into ruling out 
any other possibility. The he who makes the firm covenant in Daniel 9.27 is the Antichrist. However, some believe the he that makes the covenant was Jesus when he died on the cross. According to their theory, Jesus, after all, did make a covenant with the many by providing a way to salvation, not only for the Jew, but also for the Gentile. By dying on the cross and becoming the ultimate sacrifice needed, he made animal sacrifice unnecessary, thereby doing away with at least the need for it. There's a reason that we can clearly know that the he who makes firm the covenant is not Jesus but rather is the Antichrist. We see in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, that the he being referred to puts an end to sacrifice and then engages in the activity labeled as the abomination of desolation. Jesus neither entered into a covenant with the many that would only last seven years, did he? Nor did he cause an abomination of desolation in the temple, did he? If he had done either one of these things, then three and a half years later, he would have started ruling the earth as its anointed Messiah. None of that occurred, and so none of that makes sense. Concerning the many, who the covenant will be made firm with along with Israel, when we look elsewhere in Scripture, we note that the Antichrist will wield a significant amount of power on the world scene. In the book of Revelation, where the Antichrist is referred to as the beast, we note that he'll be a world leader of unparalleled proportion. People who teach that the return of Jesus and the events surrounding it will be limited to the region in and around Israel, and they should pay attention to this. The Bible says he'll be given power over all peoples, tongues, and nations. You can find that in Revelation 13, 5-8. Based on this, it appears that the covenant that the Antichrist confirms is between those countries in the world that the Antichrist has influence or rule over, which is the majority, or maybe even all of them, and Israel. That will certainly involve many. How can we tell this final covenant from all the rest Israel has been or will be involved in? The only sure way is to see what happens 1260 days after such a covenant has been entered into. We've already noted several activities that the Antichrist will engage in when he initiates the abomination of desolation halfway into the seven-year period. Daniel has additional information to add. This is found in Daniel chapter 11, verses 31 to 32. Here's what it says. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. This passage of Scripture was recorded after Daniel received a second visit from an angel who further explained the information Daniel received during his first angelic visitation. This angel, which was Gabriel, explained to Daniel that because the Antichrist will have great military strength, or arms, as Scripture puts it, He will have the ability to confirm or make sure the conditions of the covenant are met. But then he will also have the military strength to then break it and do the unthinkable. Our composite picture now looks like the Antichrist is in control of armed forces. He'll command them to rise up and desecrate the temple fortress. He'll cause the Jews to put an end to daily sacrifice that will again be taking place at that time. He's going to proclaim that he's some sort of God. 
there'll be an image of him placed or set up in the temple. It's these acts that take place precisely in the middle of the seven that will confirm that it is the covenant that was entered into three and a half years or 1260 days earlier between Israel and the many, which are all the nations the Antichrist has influence over. When will the covenant of the Antichrist and the many be confirmed or entered into? Well, of course, no one knows. What if the public doesn't know the duration of some covenant that enters into? No problem. The important thing to know is that if it is the covenant, then it will be broken 1260 days after it's entered into. If it is the covenant, it has a God-ordained time frame of seven years. Exactly in the middle of the seven, as Daniel 9.27 says, or 1260 days, as it's put in Revelation chapter 12, verse 6, or 42 months, as it's referred to in Revelation 13.5, or times, time, and half a time, as it's referred to in Revelation 12.14, it's that amount of time after the covenant is confirmed that the abomination of desolation will take place. In other words, we will only know with certainty the answer to the question, when will the covenant be signed, 1260 days or three and a half years after it's signed. From our perspective now, all I can say is that unless some covenant that we don't know about has been entered into within the last three years or so, that it is sometime yet in our future. Since I've been watchful for such things, I've seen Israel enter into several large covenants, and I've watched the three-and-a-half-year mark come and go without incident. Major agreements don't occur regularly with Israel. They're significant and stand out in the news. They're relatively easy to watch for. The Israel Ministry of Foreign Affairs lists 15 key treaties and agreements entered into since 1978, starting with the Camp David Accords on September 17, 1978, and ending with the Free Trade Agreement on December 18, 2007. These 15 agreements also include peace agreements between Israel and Egypt, Israel and Jordan, agreements with the U.S., the Palestinians, and others. A database that contains bilateral treaties and multilateral agreements with Israel is maintained by the Israel Ministry of Foreign Affairs. That data can be viewed online if you're interested. If this prophecy concerning a covenant, the abomination of desolation, and the return of Jesus is to take place yet in the future, there's a problem. There's not currently a Hebrew temple or holy place on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. There is, however, an Islamic mosque. For this prophecy to literally occur in our future, a temple or tabernacle would need to be rebuilt in the spot that the mosque sits now. Some would explain the lack of a physical temple away with saying that the future temple is not really a physical place. They'd say that any reference to a temple is metaphoric in nature. How interesting that prior to 1948, many said there was even a larger problem. Israel wasn't even a nation. What a miracle it was for Israel after more than 1,900 years, to again be recognized as a nation. This was a fulfillment of a prophecy made by the prophet Ezekiel. You can read about that in Ezekiel chapter 37. In the same way, it will be equally miraculous when the literal, physical temple in Jerusalem will be rebuilt. There are actually organizations in existence today, such as the Temple Institute and the Temple Mount Faithful, that was began by Gershon Solomon, one of the 1967 liberators of the Temple Mount. They're devoted to the construction of a new temple 
on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Since the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, Jews have been praying for the temple's restoration on the same spot that it stood before. Ezekiel wrote of a temple that, to date, has not ever existed in Jerusalem. The temple plans, as outlined in the book of Ezekiel, have been used as a guide by temple restoration groups such as the Temple Mount Faithful Organization. Amazingly, the Temple Mount Faithful Organization already has the necessary implements ready to begin sacrificing on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. The cornerstones for the new temple have been cut and are ready to place. This group is actively raising red heifers to be the sacrifice as required by the Old Testament for the cleansing of the temple implements. This ceremony is mentioned in the book of Numbers, chapter 19. Here's the stated goal of the Temple Mount Faithful Organization. The building of the third temple on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem in our lifetime in accordance with the word of God and all the Hebrew prophets and the liberation of the Temple Mount from the Arab Islamic occupation so that it may be consecrated to the name of God. There is evidence that early Christians believed that the Antichrist would be the one responsible for rebuilding the Hebrew temple in Israel. So-called Church Father Hippolytus, who was born around 205 AD, wrote, The prophet sets forth these things concerning the Antichrist, who will be shameless, a warmonger, and a despot, exalting himself above all king and above every god. He will build the city of Jerusalem and restore the sanctuary. Restoring the Hebrew temple in Jerusalem would surely gain the Antichrist favor and trust with the Jews. There are many wealthy people who would sympathize with this cause. Money would not stand in the way of the third temple. The problem is control of the real estate that the temple needs to stand on. In 2014, the Temple Institute in Israel underwent a funding campaign on a crowdfunding website to raise $100,000 to have a functional set of blueprints drawn up for the construction of the third temple in Israel. They raised over $105,000. It's said this funding only took three days to be raised. I just checked this. You can still go to the Indiegogo crowdfunding website and take a virtual tour of the temple. Scripture doesn't specify that a brick-and-mortar temple must be rebuilt in order for the abomination of desolation to take place. The only requirements are that burnt offerings and sacrifices will be occurring at the holy place. The holy place clearly is on the temple mount where the Hebrew temple has twice stood. Traditionally, it's the same place where Abraham offered up his son Isaac as an offering. However, beginning with Moses and up to the time of Solomon, sacrifices were conducted in a temporary, portable tabernacle. These tent structures contain the Ark of the Covenant and other holy implements. There's no reason a similar tabernacle could not be very quickly set up on the Temple Mount in the future. Jesus gave his disciples a sign to watch for that would signal his coming. It's a sign which will directly involve the Jews in Israel, but that will serve as a signal to all that have been called to watch. Although his disciples are long gone, the implications are that his followers will be on earth to see this sign and not safely tucked away in heaven after they've been raptured. Have you seen anything thus far in Jesus' words to his disciples on the Mount of Olives to indicate that his followers, Christians, would not be present to observe these signs? Did the Apostle Paul not clearly reinforce this fact to the church in Thessalonica who had become confused on this issue, telling them 
that Jesus won't return and his followers won't be gathered together to him until they first see the abomination of desolation take place. Clearly, the followers of Jesus will be around to witness the sign of the covenant being broken and the man of sin and lawlessness declaring himself to be God. This act of the abomination of desolation will occur three and a half years to the day into the seven-year period known as the 70th week of Daniel, or otherwise known as the tribulation period. Also important for you to know is that nowhere has Jesus mentioned anything about God's judgment being poured out up to this time. Although his disciples are told they will suffer for the cause of Christ, followers of Jesus are not appointed to suffer the wrath of God that will take place during the future period of time known as the Day of the Lord. So far, all we've seen is Jesus' warning concerning the sufferings of the first kind, the persecution under the Antichrist. Jesus is clearly telling his followers that are alive during this future period, and Jews who will listen to him, that they will see the abomination of desolation occur. There has been no indication that he's speaking to any special group of his followers that have been, quote, left behind, unquote. You may find yourself now saying, or someone else is saying it to you, the Bible must say somewhere else that Christians will be raptured by this point. However, if you take Scripture as it comes, as we're doing here, I argue that you will never find a pre-tribulation rapture regardless of where you're looking in the Bible. You certainly have not seen a rapture take place yet in the Olivet Discourse. However, that will soon change. In summary, the abomination of desolation is a specific sign associated with the return of Jesus. This foul and detestable act of desecration that's associated with the Hebrew holy place of sacrifice in Jerusalem has occurred in history on more than one occasion. By Jesus citing Daniel's prophecy concerning the abomination of desolation as a sign of the end of the age, he provided a time framework around the events of the end. The future and ultimate desecration of the Jewish temple will involve the setting up of an image of the Antichrist in the holy place. This will happen precisely 1260 days after a covenant with many has been confirmed. It will be necessary for a future holy place to be reestablished in Jerusalem if this prophecy is to be literally fulfilled. And there is an effort to do just that in Israel today. Jesus encouraged his disciples to reconsider or think again about what they thought they knew about the abomination of desolation, since from their perspective they must have thought it was a prophecy that was already fulfilled. The ultimate fulfillment of the prophecies concerning the abomination of desolation could not have possibly occurred in the past, since it's associated with the end of the age, the return of Jesus, the beginning of the day of the Lord, and the resurrection of the dead. The elect of God will be present for this event, and there has been no evidence in the Olivet Discourse, or anywhere else in Scripture, that any supernatural rescue will have taken place prior to this event. Persecution of the elect of God will take place at the hands of the Antichrist. However, Jesus' return and the rescue of his church, once the abomination of desolation has occurred, will soon follow, so that the elect of God that remain on earth will be saved from having to endure the wrath of God. That's really, really good news, and a good place to end for now. Next time, we'll talk about what to do when the Antichrist shows up. Until then, God bless, 
and Maranatha. Until my next podcast, you can follow me on Facebook by going to the Doug Hooley Ministries page. I'm on Twitter at at Doug H. Ministries. And I'm on Instagram at Doug Hooley Ministries. Find out about what I'm working on and read some of my blogs at DougHooley.com. Or email me at Doug at DougHooley.com. That's Doug at D-O-U-G-H-O-O-L-E-Y dot com. I'd love to hear from you. This has been the Called Out Cafe. So long and God bless.